Oh God, children, we're all children. We're your children. We are earth children. Could it be we are starving to death? We look well fed. Our tummies are full. But are we starving? Are we on the point of death? This morning in Holy Scripture, teach us. Let the teaching be clear. Let us know how you would have us respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can't talk about starving without thinking famine. You can't think about famine without thinking of the Horn of East Africa. Let me put a map of the Horn of East Africa up here. Take a look at this. The darker the color, the more extreme the suffering. That dark section in the middle. These are the countries, by the way, of Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Djibouti. You're getting into Somalia there. That, that's catastrophic famine. According to the key, that's catastrophic famine. The United Nations now estimates that more than 13 million people on that map are suffering, are starving to death. Sixty years they've gone without water. Sixty years in the Horn of Africa. In Somalia alone, down where that's dark, four million are starving. Three million of whom live in the southern portion of Somalia. So it just gets worse and worse as you move down. They're estimating now that uh, 750,000 people face the risk of death in the next four months, the U.N. says, if help does not come. Maybe you're going to be the help they need. I don't know. But let me talk about the children. The death rate now, under five, 15.43 deaths per 10,000 individuals daily, daily. 30,000 children have died. Two, two per 10,000 is the threshold of famine. It's 15.43. But running numbers by you doesn't move you at all. So let me put some faces by you. Take a look at these suffering. Look at that. Sitting in a little plastic bathtub. Starving to death. Take a look at another face. The family looking on. Victims of starvation. Look at, look at one more. That little baby looks like he's 80 years of age, does he not? He is starving to death. Could it be that if you were putting the faces of the starving, our faces go up? Yeah, right, like we just prayed, our tummies are full. But are we on the edge of spiritual starvation? The fourth gospel confronts us with that question. Familiar, beloved narrative, and then a metaphor that many find disgusting. We're getting to the metaphor, but first the familiar narrative. The teaching today is entitled, Starving to Death When the Pantry is Full. Let us pray. Oh God, amazing grace that you come to us full tummies. But in this Narrative. Holy Spirit, confront us with our desperate need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bible, please, to the fourth gospel. The, the fourth gospel. The gospel of John. Beloved narrative. Do you know what? This is, the on, this is the only miracle that all four gospels record. That's how popular this, this miracle is. You know the miracle. You grew up with it as a kid. You know John chapter 6, but we return to this beloved narrative because the narrative sets us up for this revolting metaphor that it is imperative we wrestle with as we continue our journey through the last word. That's the fourth gospel. 
The Gospel of John for our final generation. Let's go to John chapter 6. I'm in the New King James Version. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It will also be the New King James Version. Let's, let's get into the teaching together. John chapter 6. Pick it up in verse 1. Let's go. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. John's the only one who refers to it by its Roman name, because John has Gentile readers in mind. He's written specifically for them. So, Jesus went over the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2, Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus is at his heyday right now. He has the popularity of a rock star by the thousands People are flocking to him. I saw, I saw a news clip this last week of uh, President Obama. He's on the Denver campus of the University of Colorado, and the place is just jammed. And as the, as the camera panned, these uh, young university students, I mean, it's just a look of, wow. Jesus is in that same status. The people at the edge of the crowd are holding up their iPhones, and they're taking pictures to email to their friends. I'm near, I'm near the star himself. But in a few short verses, everything collapses. So they follow him because they've seen the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Four times John will talk about the Passover. Four times he wants us to recall the images, not only of the ancient Exodus, he wants the readers post-Calvary to to recall the images of the cross. And so he intentionally uses the word Passover. And by the way, this is his last Passover. The next Passover, it's curtains. He dies. He will be the Passover lamb. John skips two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Boom, gone. And he plunges into the crisis. And the crisis hits hits the apex right here. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Verse 5, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, who happened to grow up in little Bethsaida, a village near this mountain where Jesus is going to perform this miracle. He happens to say to Philip, where should we buy bread that these may eat? Yo, Phil, you grew up in this town. Any supermarkets that can cover this crowd? Now, we're going to find out there are 5,000 men. They only list the men. Census back then, that's the... those are the heads they count. But if the men are married, you're going to throw in probably going to throw in what? Another 3,500, four, uh, 30, yeah, 3,500. Then you're going to throw in children. We could be looking at a small baseball stadium, Triple A, not World Series, but Triple A baseball stadium of 15,000 people. So Philip, where are we going to get bread? But he said this. Jesus did verse six. He said this to test Philip, for he knew, he himself knew what he would do. He wants to set this up so that when Philip experiences this miracle, he will never forget it as long as he lives. So Philip answers him in verse 7. I thought about it. You know what, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, Philip has grabbed a big number. This is 200 days of a common labor. It's $8 an hour minimum wage, so that's eight eight, uh, hours a day, so that would be 64 times 200. $12,800. Even if we could have $12,800, Lord, from our ATM machines, all of us at the same time using our debit cards, it wouldn't be enough to pay for food for these. Ah, that's the point. Jesus wants Philip to get it. Now, Philip and Andrew are buddies. They appear in chapter 1 together. They appear here together. They will appear in chapter 12 together. They both grew up in the same town. So where Philip is, you'll find Andrew. And Andrew either is over, overhearing or he's standing beside Philip. And Andrew pipes up. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's bro, said to him, Hey, wait a minute. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? 
Jesus says to the two men, Make the people sit down. This is verse 10. Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. That's John the eyewitness because it's springtime. Passover is here. And so this mountain, it's not a mountain, it's a hillside. We would call it a hill today. But this mountain is just this verdant green carpet that goes all the way up to the top. Nice soft carpet. Jesus says, make everybody sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000, plus the women, plus the children. We're looking at 15,000, perhaps. Verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, his characteristic, his characteristic behavior at the beginning of a meal, he takes the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise, of the fish... The fish was used as a relish. Those were actually sandwiches that little boy brought. They were barley sandwiches. Now, barley is not, your, it's not, your, it's not the top of the menu requests. In fact, Philo, the, uh, the uh, Jewish philosopher, described barley, which is a cheaper substitute for wheat. Barley, he described it as fit for irrational animals and men in unhappy circumstances. It's awful food. Only the poor the poor eat barley. So... so uh, Andrew finds this poor kid. He said, hey, hey, hey boy, let me, just, let me just have your lunch. Five barley loaves. The, the fish, a little sardine or whatever, that's, that's relish. He just, mother sent the slices and he has to put it on. So he gives the relish and the five, five loaves. Jesus breaks it, gives it to the disciples. The disciples then give it to those sitting down. This is the end of verse 11. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So, verse 12, when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. We waste nothing in my kingdom. I'm reading a commentator named Robert Smith. Delightful commentary on the fourth gospel. And he makes a point. He says, you know what? Jesus isn't so concerned about the fragments. Yes, he is. But he's making a point about humanity. I don't want any fragments of humanity lost. I want every man, woman, and child picked up for the kingdom. Do you understand? Nobody gets left behind. That'd be a good, uh, that'd be a good slogan, wouldn't it? No child left behind. Everyone comes. You get them all. You hear me? Get them all. And they go out. And they, they gather up the fragments. This is verse 13. Therefore, when they had gathered them up, they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which are left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when... These are the men sitting on the ground. When they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And by the way, this is capital P, prophet, because they're thinking of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 who says, One day God is going to send a, send a prophet just like me. And he will lead you. This is the capital P prophet. Hey, wait a minute, guys. Shh, come here, come here. Think about this. We would, if when, when we go into battle, we would never be hungry. We could be fed night and day. And guess what? If any of us got hit, true, oh, he'll heal us on the spot. We need this guy to become king. That's exactly what's happening here. Look at that, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, the deal is, John cuts out two key points that the synoptics insert right here. Number one, knowing the intentions of the crowd, the synoptics tell us Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, get in that boat. Get in that boat, push off the shore now. 
And Desire of Ages describes it this way. The disciples protested, but Jesus now spoke with an authority he had never before assumed toward them and in silence. Steaming. But in silence, they turned toward the sea. Now, go! And then he turns. He turns to the crowd. And according to the synoptics, he dismisses the crowd with the air of an authority. There were strong men in that crowd, Desire of Ages says, strong men who are ready to force their will to be done. Jesus speaks to them with a divinity that dispels the crowd. And then, heartbroken, you know his heart is broken, because now, the big plunge, he knows what lies ahead. Heartbroken, he climbs that mountain, that tall hill, to be alone with his father. And the disciples, look at this, verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So they obeyed Jesus that far. They go down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. In other words, they actually waited. They didn't push off. They waited. Desire of Ages fills us in on the psyche of these disciples at this moment of terrible disappointment. I want to read this to you. I'll put it on the screen. I want to read this to you because I find it very familiar as to what happens in my own spiritual journey. Watch this. Maybe it happens to you too. Words on the screen. They, the disciples, had left Jesus with dissatisfied hearts, more impatient with Him than ever before since acknowledging Him as their Lord. They murmured because they had not been permitted to proclaim Him king. They blamed themselves for yielding so readily to His command. I told you, why didn't you stand up? What a wimp! Well, why didn't you stand up? They're blaming each other for yielding so readily to His command. They reasoned that if they had been more persistent, this was the golden moment. He is a star. If they had been more persistent, they might have accomplished their purpose. Unbelief, now, now, now keep reading. Unbelief was taking possession of their minds. Because that's what happens whenever I catch myself moving into a little poor me pity party. When I start feeling sorry for myself, God, you, you really let me down on this one. I can't believe it. The moment I start moving into that thinking, I tell you what, it is self-perpetuating. It just kicks into gear. And suddenly questions you would have never thought of start popping up in your mind. Watch this with them. Unbelief was taking possession of their minds and hearts. Now here come a series of questions. Number one, were they always to be accounted followers of a false prophet? You know how that hard that is on my pride? Number two, would Christ never assert his authority as king? Number three, why didn't he who possessed such power reveal himself in his true character and make their own way less painful? Number four, why had he not saved John the Baptist from a violent death? Whoa, whoa, time out. How are you getting into John the Baptist? He has nothing to do with this. But when you move into that poor me, dark thinking, suddenly the enemy of your soul is able to slip in totally unrelated doubts that will continue to weigh you down. His goal... Kill your heart. Kill your faith. Cut you off. And they're going down. Thus the disciples reasoned, isn't this something, until they brought upon themselves great spiritual darkness. Last question. Can you believe this? They questioned, could Jesus be an imposter as the Pharisees asserted? Maybe, guys. Maybe. Maybe. He's a fake. Can you imagine Their thoughts were stormy and unreasonable. 
You know, I found this to be true. That's why I wanted this line in that quote. And the Lord gave them something else to afflict their souls and occupy their minds. When you and I move into that sicky, poor me, pitiful me thinking, I found it in my own journey. That's when I'm blindsided. But He allows it to take my mind off of me, 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 and refocus on why I live anyway. Ah, their thoughts were stormy and unreasonable. Guess what? They get a storm. God often does this when men and women create burdens and troubles for themselves. The disciples had no need to make trouble. Already danger was fast approaching. End quote. You know, it's one of the topographical features of the eastern shore of Galilee. Those towering hills, they call them mountains, we call them hills. But they are severed by this massive deep gorge that runs straight to the lake. It is a veritable wind tunnel. And out of nowhere, those gales would come exploding out of that gorge onto the hapless Sea of Galilee. And that's exactly what God allows to happen tonight. Verse 18. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So, verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, can you imagine rowing for three or four miles? When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. It is a ghost. This is the only, we're going down Davy Jones' locker. Here we come. This is death. And they scream into the howling gale. They cry out. And I love this. Verse 20. But Jesus said to them, in the Greek, reads just like this. I am. I am. That's all. I am. Do not be afraid. I am. Do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land. Supernatural miracle gets in the boat, it's there. They disembark. I want to hit the pause button right here. We're moving to this disgusting metaphor, but there are two life lessons I wish we would jot down right now. Would you grab your uh, study guide? It's in your worship bulletin. I want you to get these two life lessons. We can't, we can't hurry through this story and miss what's embedded in this beloved narrative. And so grab the, uh, the worship bulletin, pull it out. Ushers, thank you for slipping by, making sure everybody gets one. If you didn't get one, hold your hand up, up in the balcony, in overflow, wherever you are. We want to make sure you get that study guide. Those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You're live streaming right now. Good. I'm going to put the website on the screen for you, and you will see there. In fact, you see it right now, www.pmchurch.tv. You're in the series, The Last Word. This is, I can't believe it's part nine already. We are flying through this gospel. Title of this teaching today, Starving for Bread When the Pantry is Full. So you see the last word. Then you go to Starving for Bread, and it says Study Guide. You click on the Study Guide, you'll have the same Study Guide. Jot down with us, please, those of you watching right now. Jot down with us the, these two life lessons, just two little lessons, and then we plunge into this revolting, some consider, uh, metaphor. Let's go. Lesson number one. Would you please jot it down? No matter how small your gift, that lad with the five barley loaves and two fishies, no matter how small your gift in the hands of the Master, it can feed the world. Would you write that down, please? No matter how small your little gift in the hands of Jesus, nail scar today, he'll feed, he'll feed the world through you. This is Desire of Ages. Keep your pen moving. The means in our possession may seem to be may not seem to be sufficient for the work. What can God do with my 
humble little tiny gift. Doesn't seem sufficient. God, you can't do anything big on this planet through me. Ah, but if we will move forward in faith, hold on now, believing in the all-sufficient power of God, abundant resources will open before us. I love that. Just step forward. Just, just step forward. The little you have, God will provide. And the emphasis is mine here. If the work be of God, He Himself will provide the means for its accomplishment. You say, what kind of work are we talking about, God? Well, God says, any work you do for me. That can be your career. The career you're moving into, the career you're already in. If you're doing it for me, I will advance your cause. You got an ambition for me? I will provide the means for its accomplishment. And then that last sentence, he will reward honest, simple reliance upon him. The little, don't you love this? The little that is wisely and economically used in the service of the Lord of heaven will increase in the very act of imparting. You just let go of it. Just let go of that humble little gift. I know it seems like nothing. You know what? That's what the devil's going to do to you, by the way. Don't let him fool you. He's going to come and say, you are an insignificant nobody, just like that little lad. You don't have what it takes. But if you'll take the little you have and put it in his hands, God promises to feed your world. And here's lesson number two, then the metaphor. Lesson number two, ambition for power will destroy you. You know, when you live in an institution like this, there's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of jockeying. There's a lot of who's, uh, who's, whose silo is this? Whose space is this? I mean, who's got the, what, what, what grade am I? Where, where, where am I in the pecking order? I wish you'd jot that down. Life lesson number two, ambition for power will destroy you. I mean, why else did Lucifer come? And he reserves for the final, the final blast after 40 days and 40 nights of praying, Jesus in the wilderness. Why does Lucifer reserve number three for the end? Because it's the most deadly. If you'll bow down to me. Hey, hey boy, listen to me. If you'll bow down to me, you give me your life. I will give you this world. I will make you the most powerful, the most popular. I will move you to a position you've never been before. That's why he saves it to the end. Because we are so vulnerable. How many stars of Hollywood, how many stars of Washington, how many stars of Wall Street have cut this Faustian bargain with the devil? All right, I'll sell my soul, but you make me number one. Numero uno. You make me numero uno. And I'll follow. Robert Smith, in his commentary, Wounded Lord, it's there in your study guide. The crowds are astonished. Boy, is this insightful or what? The crowds are astonished by this great sign, the feeding of the 15,000. They call Jesus the prophet. And impressed by his powers, get this, they want to make him king. The prophet and king are high compliments. But hold on, not high enough. The devil will always get you to sell yourself short through your ambition. He said, hey, listen, I'll get you up to here, but he will never raise you to where God can raise you. Jesus isn't a prophet. He's not a king. He is the I am. If he yielded to that siren song of those crowds, he'd have cut himself down to prophet and king when he is the eternal I am. The devil will never let you rise to your divine potential. He'll sell you an ambition that will sell you here, stop you here. And then you live, never having raised to the heights God willed for you. Take the humble road. Forget that position. Let it go. One day you're going to sit on the throne of the humble in the kingdom of God. And that ought to be payoff enough, huh? Two little life lessons along the way. But how can, it, how can, how can, how can we meet the ambition that takes us to that kingdom? Now we come 
Now we are confronted with a strong metaphor. Some feel almost on the border of disgusting. Let's go. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 25. The crowd, by the way, is, is waiting for Jesus when the boat comes in. They're trying to figure out, hey, how'd you get here? Because they want another miracle. Jesus cuts through all of that. Verse 25. And when they found him, the crowd on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, verse 26. And he said to them, most assuredly, amen, amen. Twenty-five times in the Gospel of John, four of them are right here in chapter 6. Whenever we run into that double amen, remember, there's a giant red flag. Say, yo, reader, slow down. This is big stuff. Amen, amen, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, not because you were moved by the glory of God, but because you aided the loaves and were filled. You just want your tummies filled 24-7. Verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. And the crowd is primed and ready. Man, this is, this is the rock star. This is the miracle worker. And they Say to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, verse 29, and he said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And therefore they said to him, oh, come on. You're not talking about you, are you? See, they're baiting him. They want more. What what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Because, you see, there was a rumor going around the Jewish community at that time that when the Messiah comes, he would give them manna day after day after day. All right, one fine meal you gave us, but we want the big sign. Can you feed us for the rest of our lives? Our fathers, verse 31, ate the manna in the desert. It is written, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you do the same? Then Jesus said to them, verse 32, most assuredly, amen, amen. Listen to me. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to them, to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. Just like the Samaritan woman, they have missed the point. Give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well ever again. Lord, give me this bread so that I never get hungry again. They missed it. And Jesus said to them, here we go now. I am... It's ego a me. It's, it's the same I am as, as he said on the high seas. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And she who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, most assuredly, amen, amen. There's the fourth one. I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. For verse 48, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I'm going to walk over to this table now. Can you see the table from where you are? All right. Let me just remove this lovely little doily at the top. Oh. You know what that is, don't you? Yeah. The whole world knows what that is. Do you know what? Every culture, every society has bread. Mm-hmm. South of the border, it doesn't look like this. They call them tortillas. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's a bread. In France, it's long and narrow and huge. I was over in Paris, you know, I went to a restaurant, it was a long thing. They call them baguettes. Over in India, they're thick and flat and round, and they're called naan. They have it in Asia. They have it in Africa. It's small and white. It's called rice. Don't you laugh. 
I grew up in Asia, all right? Rice was a staple. We, we never ate, we, we hardly ever ate bread, maybe on a Sabbath. My wife grew up in an all-American family. Bread every single meal, seven days a week. But that's the world. The whole world. This, this, by the way, is created by this lovely little bread maker in our village named Myrna Witzel. She's the bread maker. So I had to make two loaves. Because I get to keep them after this is over. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to slice the bread. All right, I'm going to slice the bread. I mean, every culture in the world knows that this is what you do with bread. <sighs> Did I say homemade, by the way? Yeah. You know, I wonder why Jesus, I wonder why Jesus chose this metaphor. I mean, please, bread. Why did Jesus choose the metaphor of bread and say, hey, world, I am the bread of life. There must be something in this, huh? It's got to be. Oh, I can't slice it all. How about three nice little slices? Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, here's the deal. You see that? You got a camera on it? I want to put Jesus' words on the screen now, now that you've seen the bread. And I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to call out to me. We've never done this before. I'm going to ask you to call out to me what the human race, what, what benefits do we human earth, do we earth children gain from eating bread? There are benefits. Come on. doesn't matter what you call the bread in the land where you live. There are benefits. And so let's put it on the screen. I am the bread of life. And I'm going to give you the first one. I'm going to, there's, seven, there's seven blanks in your study guide. You're going to fill them in. Whatever you say goes in that blank. All right? So I have no idea what you're going to say. But whatever you say, it'll go in the blank. And there is our producer up there sitting behind a keyboard. And she is going to get it when I repeat it to her. Her. I'll hear it and then I'll repeat it. But let's put, let's, let's put one up. Let's just say, number one, what is it that bread does? It nourishes you. Isn't that true? Bread nourishes you. Now, we've got six more blanks on your study guide to fill it in. So you call it in and uh, let's fill it in. It has to begin with it and then something you. All right, let's go. Tell me, what, does, what benefits do humans accrue from bread? It comforts. I heard comforts. Let's fill that in, please. It comforts you. Hey, you know what? That's true, isn't it? When somebody comes up from south of the border to north of the border, feeling lonely, feeling, feeling abandoned, if, if, if you can just get a hold of some bread from home, some, some tortilla, there is a comfort. No, that's true. When, when an American travels overseas in a country where there isn't a lot of bread and you go to a restaurant and they have bread, it's a, it's a, it's a comfort food. I like that. Yeah, it comforts you. That's what bread does. It comforts you. All right, let's put, let's put another one. How about another one? It keeps you alive. Keeps you alive. Now, I want to I put uh, keeps you alive. Let's put that up there. It keeps, well, it's good. It's, yeah, well, yeah, okay. It, it keeps alive you. Let's do that. All right, uh, Jana, just put it up there. It keeps you alive. That'll be fine. It keeps you alive. That's good. Just keep it to one word if you can. All right, it keeps you alive. See, they're trying to figure out. Yeah, there it is. It keeps you alive. Okay, what else does bread do? What are, what are the benefits? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat this bread, this is what will happen to you. It, it nourishes you. It comforts you. It keeps you alive. Give me another one. A little louder. It fills. Okay, I got fills. I heard that. It fills you. Yeah, it does. It fills you. You know why? That's why the poor, by the way, ate the barley bread. 
It wasn't the greatest fight. I said, but it fills your tummy. You eat that barley bread, it just fills you up. You can't have, you can't have broccoli and tossed salad. That's, can't afford it, but you eat the bread. It fills the stomach. Yeah, that's good. It fills you. All right. I've got to come over this way a little bit more because I've been hearing a lot of voices from over there. What else does it do over here? It pleases you. I heard that. Pleases you. It pleases you. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Why does it please you? Because I have something at last. My hunger is satiated by that which pleases me. I love my bread. I love my naan. I love my baguette. I love my tortilla. I love my rice. It pleases me. All right. One, two, three, four, five. We can do two more. How about this side here? Huh? What, what, what part? It energizes. I like that. It energizes you. Why? When I consume this bread, I draw strength from it, don't I? I mean, just like, it's like putting on, putting the change in my Duracell batteries. And now I'm energized. Oh, I like that. It energizes you. One, two, three. How about one more? What does bread... What are the benefits that accrue from bread? One more. Satisfies. It's not up there. Let's put it up. I like that. Satisfies you. It satisfies you. I don't have to go anywhere else. You give me a loaf of bread. You give me that naan. Give me that baguette. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. Very good. Now here's the deal, guys. Leave it up there, please. I want you to look at it. By the way, you can fill it in your study guide. Fill those in. Those seven. Here's the deal. Does Jesus, who says, I am the bread of life, does Jesus do the same? Let's go to that list. Does Jesus nourish you? Oh, but he does. He says, I'll, I, I will nourish you. I'll put, those ingre- I'll put those vitamins into you, those spiritual vitamins. I will nourish you. Does Jesus comfort you? Oh, but of course. Does Jesus keep you alive? Yes. Does Jesus fill you? Yeah. Fill me till I... That old song. Fill me till I... Feed me till I want no more. Fill me. Does Jesus please you? Yeah, does He? Yeah, but of course. Does Jesus energize you? How does He energize you? I mean, how does He energize you? What's He do? Huh? Gives you the strength. Empowers you for the moment. One more. Does Jesus satisfy? Uh, Nobody. That old gospel hymn. Nobody satisfies like Jesus. Jesus says, hey guys, look, 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 look. See this bread? I am. I am the bread of life for you. Now, having made that point, he pivots to this revolting metaphor. Come on, we can't skip it. Let's, let's, Let's confront it. Let's go. Verse 51. I am, Jesus speaking now, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my what? Is my flesh. That I shall give for the life of the world. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Hey, did you hear what he just said? Did he say what I thought he, what, what I thought I heard him say? Yep, yep, yep. And in fact, the Greek here in verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled. The Greek means they came to fight. They came to fight so that some commentators wonder if there were not physical altercations in the synagogue of Capernaum when Jesus comes and says, it's my flesh I'm talking about. They are quarreling. He didn't say, yes, he did. He did. Yes, he did. Then Jesus says, all right, 
I want this metaphor to be crystal clear. And four times in a row now, four times, in case we missed it, the first and the second, four times he will state the metaphor. Here we go. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, here it comes. Amen. Amen. I say to you, this is huge now, red flag. Listen, reader. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink His blood, you have no life in you. That's number one. Number two, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise her up at the last day. Here comes number three. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And here comes number four. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That is revolting. Can't miss it. You know this earthquake in Turkey, if you've been following just this week? A previous earthquake, I'll never forget the stories as long as I live. The previous earthquake, a mother and, and little child were trapped beneath the rubble for days. They finally, hallelujah, found them alive. And they asked the mother, how did you keep your little, your little child alive? And the mother said, I let my child drink my blood. That's what it makes you feel, doesn't it? Ah, oh, ooh. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't live. That was on the border of revolting. So what's Jesus saying here? For a long time, scholars have thought, you know what he's doing? He's slipping in a little homily on the Lord's Supper. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the Lord's Supper in them. And there is no Lord's Supper in John. No Lord's Supper. So this is John's way of slipping the Lord's Supper in a little bit early to make sure that they still get the value of the Lord's Supper. But scholars now, and I'm Craig Keener, whom I'm leaning on uh, rather, rather, rather heavily in the uh, writing of these, these teachings. Craig Keener makes the point. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this were really a Lord's Supper uh, homily... There's something huge that's missing. The word wine is never used. In the Paschal or the Passover Supper and the Lord's Supper, you always have bread and wine. We have the bread. No word about wine. And he says, by the way, flesh, the word here for flesh is sarks. In the Lord's Supper formula, it's not sarks, it's soma, it's body. Jesus says, this is my body. He, doesn't, he never says, this is my flesh broken for you. Keener says, he's, John is doing this for a reason. Now, put it on the screen. You'll have it in your study guide as well. Flesh and blood. What's the point? Flesh and blood show the believer's absolute dependence on Christ's death. John not only omits the final Paschal Lord's Supper meal in his Passion narrative, he makes Jesus' actual death the real Passover. Now listen, scholars. What happens is the Passover occurs when Jesus dies. In John's Gospel, that's the Passover. There's no Passover Thursday night. The Passover is when he dies. Keep reading. John plainly moves the Passover from the Last Supper to the crucifixion. In the context of the entire Gospel, John's Eucharistic language thus applies directly to Jesus' death. The way one partakes is through faith in the Spirit. John's words invite his audience to look to Christ's death itself, not merely to those symbols which point to his death. End quote. Now here's the point. Listen carefully. Sometimes we get to thinking when we celebrate the Lord's Supper that it's all wrapped up in the, in the emblems themselves. There are some of our friends who, by the grace of God, will try to go to a Mass every single day so that I get the symbols and they become a part of me. But John is working 
over time to remove, to remove the focus on the symbols and say, no, 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 no. What counts is Calvary itself, the real flesh, the real blood of the cross. That's what Jesus is calling you and me to come to. Not the symbols, but the event itself. Calvary. Calvary. In fact, would you jot this down, please? Christ's bold language is His call to His disciples to meet Him at the foot of the cross when He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Come here. Come here. Come, quick, quick, quick. Come here to the foot of the cross. Meet me here as the Passover lamb. So what does it mean? What does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ? I want to end with this one more quotation. Desire of Ages. You have it in your study guide. You'll have to fill it in. Let's go. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to receive Him as a personal Savior. Not a collective Savior. Not a campus-wide Savior. Not a congregational Savior. Personal. Your own. Not your family. Not your daddy. Not your mommy. Your Savior. Have you accepted Him as your Savior? That's what it means. To accept Him as a personal Savior. Believing that He forgives my sins and that I am complete in Him. It is by beholding His love at the foot of the cross, by dwelling upon it, by drinking it in, that we are to become partakers of His nature. Now, jot this down. What food is to the body, Christ must be to the soul. We'll come back to that line. That's the point of this radical metaphor. What food is to the body, Christ must be to the soul. Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it, unless it becomes part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we don't know Him as a personal Savior. A theoretical knowledge will do us no good. I don't care how many religious hours you have to take in order to get your degree here at Andrews University. It won't matter a hill of beans unless you personally encounter the Christ that is being taught. We must feed upon Him. We must receive Him into the heart so that His life becomes ours. His love, I love this, His love, His grace must be assimilated. Take it in. Take it in. His love and His grace must be assimilated. You say, now come on, Dwight, give me something specific. How can I eat the flesh and drink the blood of my Lord Jesus Christ? Let me leave these five with you then. Jot these down, would you please? This is how. Number one, take time alone with Jesus daily. He said, I've already heard this before. You're hearing it again. Take time alone with Jesus daily. Number two, one slice a day. One gospel story a day. One slice a day. Number three, chew. Chew that slice. Ruminate over it. Brood over it. Wrestle with it. Meditate on it. Chew the bread. Chew it. Number four, respond to the picture of Jesus that the Spirit will reveal to you. You'll see a picture of Him and respond to that. Say, this is how I respond, Lord. And finally, number five, kneel. Kneel before the crucified one and offer Him your day. He said, do I just say offer Him your life? Of course. But He needs your day. Today and today and today until I come. Give me your day. Just give me today. Offer to Him your day. Now, is that rocket science, ladies and gentlemen? It is not rocket science. Is that difficult? It is not difficult. How did Desire of Ages put it? His life, His love, His grace must be assimilated. So, in a few moments, when, you're, when, when, this, when, the, when the last amen is said, if you would like to tweet this message, if you would like to tweet this teaching 
to your friends and family in 140 characters or less, I'm going to give you the one line. Would you please send this line? Pass this line to your friends. Pass this line to your family. Get them to come to the website. Get them to go to that, t- that podcast. Here's the line that you tweet to them, please. Jesus is your soul food. Tweet it. Jesus is your soul food. And by the way, I don't care if you misspell the word soul. I don't care if you spell it S-O-L-E instead of S-O-U-L because it's still true. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ our Lord. Jesus is your soul food. Have you had your bread today? Jesus is your soul food. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. That's too simple. I need something a little more complicated. I need to be really stretching me intellectually. My friend, that's been the problem. We have sought to stretch each other till we are stretched out. We're living at the edge of, edge of eternity. We are at the end of time. And here's my concern. I'll be just, this is pastor to pastor time now. No notes. Here's my concern. I'm concerned that as a people, because we have no assurance that this really is the end, that we are treating life now Business as usual. The problem with our community of faith, and I want to say this gently, the problem with our community of faith, it's, a, it's, 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 it's an okay problem to have. We tend to front load everything at the beginning of the spiritual journey. My friend Ron Cluzet, I tell you what, I've been just praising God. Tonight is his last night, and he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You want to get just one of his because you haven't gone to any of the others? Come just pack it into the, uh, the youth chapel tonight. His last lecture. But my friend Ron Cluzet has been teaching, teaching for four weeks now. But we tend to do that. We kind of front load it at the beginning of the journey. And then most of us come in that way. And then we spend the rest of our lives just kind of just feeding off of the fumes. We miss the metaphor. The point of the metaphor is, well, let me show it to you. The point of the metaphor is here in verse uh, 35. We just whipped through it a moment ago. May I read this in your hearing? Verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now watch what happens in the original language. He who, the Greek reads, keeps on coming to me. He who keeps on coming to me shall never hunger. And she who keeps on believing in me shall never thirst. It's not front-end loaded. It's not front-loaded at all. It's day after day after day. You've got to keep coming. The story Jesus told about the ten virgins, five of them, when the, when the crisis hits and the world is falling apart, five of them have not been coming every day. They have nothing. There's nothing they can scare up. There's nothing. They, you can't borrow it from a friend of yours. Give me your spirituality. Give me the bread of life that you've been eating. You can't. It's too late. It's too late. If you're waiting for adrenaline to be your call to draw near to Jesus. Can't be adrenaline. I am the bread of life. You come back to me. Continuous, repetitive action. You come back to me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me. Is what he's saying. I am the bread of life. I'm your bread today. I'm your bread today. I'm your bread today. There's no tomorrow with me. I'm your bread today. I'm your bread today. I am what you're hungry for. Come to me. Some of us are thinking, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just this is so simple, this devotional life business. My friends, we will rise or fall on the simplicity of this truth, the bread of life.
If we don't get it, we starve to death and it's curtains spiritually. Eat and eat and eat. Oh, do I, can I do it on my iPhone? I don't care where you do it. Eat the Word. Follow the Gospel one slice at a time. Alone with it. How much time? Forget how much time. That's always the question we ask. And then, then we, get, we get railroaded, sidetracked. Forget it. Time. One slice. Chew it. Respond to it. Kneel down and say, God, bread of life, let us go together. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what it means to live on the edge of eternity. You're eating bread today and today and today until Jesus comes. Otherwise, you starve to death. You die. Why would you die when the pantry is full? I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond today. I'm going to give you a piece of bread. In fact, if you line up right here, I can go through this pretty quick. I'm going to give you a piece of bread. No, it's not this right here. Our ushers are ready right now to come your way. I want everybody here to receive a piece of bread. It's close enough to dinner. You can eat it without fouling up your digestive system. All right? Ushers, let's go. Let's just come. All in the balcony, ushers, let's go. Halfway back, ushers, let's go. In the uh, youth chapel, let's go. Take, take some bread. If you're really hungry, take two or three pieces. It's okay. <laughs> this is not communion. This is not communion. We're not having communion here. This is a chance to take the bread of life and symbolically say to you and to say to Jesus, you know what, Jesus? You are my bread of life. Jesus, I have not had the time that I needed with you, but Jesus, I am eating this bread right now as a commitment that's starting, starting today, Jesus. Starting today, I will eat the bread. I will drink the water. I want to be nearer and nearer to you. I'd rather have you, Jesus, than anything in the whole wide world. I don't need power. I don't need fame. I don't need riches. I don't need land. I want you, Jesus. I don't need success. I don't need the adrenaline of a pumped-up life hunting and hurting for success. I want you, Jesus. And when I eat this, Jesus, I'm saying to you, don't eat it yet. Oh, you already ate it? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, just for that, I'm going to eat it too. <laughs> but Jesus, when I eat this, Jesus, what I'm saying is I want you in, I want you in me. I want your nature in me. I want, I want what you are to be Dwight. I want Dwight to be you. I'm such a mess, Jesus. I let you down so often. But please, every morning, feed me. Till I want no more. You know that old, that old song, Feed Me Till I Want No More? I got to thinking between services. It really should say, Feed Me Till I Want Some More. Because you never run out of wanting this, guys. You never have. I had, a great, I had a great meal yesterday. Do you ever do that? I had a great breakfast yesterday. I'm dropping breakfasts for the rest of my life. No. I want a great breakfast today. I don't want a great breakfast tomorrow. You just keep coming back. This is the bread. 